It's Lucy Litch, and this is Tiny House Conversations. It's the Australian-based podcast where I interview experienced tiny houses, tiny builders, and adventurers in the tiny world, so you can discover how to create, build, and transition into tiny life. Before we get into the show, I want to know something. Are you a tiny houser and would you like to share your tiny house story and experiences on the podcast? Or are you a business that has a product or service that aligns with the tiny house movement and would be beneficial for the tiny house community that you'd also like to share on the podcast? If so, I'd love to hear from you and you can head over to tinyhouseconversations.com and on there you'll see a section that says share your story. If you fill out your details there, I'll get back to you very soon. Now, here's the intro. Hi, it's Lucy here with another episode of Tiny House Conversations. And today I'm chatting with Paul Pritchett, a finance broker from Victoria and the founder of Great Escape Finance, Australia's number one tiny house finance company. Paul has a passion for sustainable living and aims to help those in non-standard living arrangements such as tiny homes, off-grid community living and shipping container homes being part of his focus with Great Escape Finance. And in this conversation, we discuss all about Great Escape Finance and the lending solutions available for tiny houses how far in advance you should start the process of tiny finance and what impact this can have on interest rates and the amount you can borrow, the considerations and differences between financing a tiny home with and without land. We also discussed working out how much you can afford to borrow, the biggest misconception about tiny house finance, and plenty more. Before we get into the conversation, I want to offer a disclaimer. The information discussed in this conversation is not intended to replace or offer financial advice to podcast listeners. It is for educational purposes only. So please seek the professional advice of your own finance broker before making any decisions about your finances. Or even better, contact Paul directly at Great Escape Finance. Now with that being said, on to the show with Paul. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Tiny House Conversations, and thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks very much for having me, Lucy. My pleasure. And so today, Paul, we're talking about all things tiny finance and the realities of borrowing money for a tiny house. But before we dive into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and your background in finance, uh, your interest in off-the-grid living and tiny houses and how Great Escape Finance came to be. All right. Um, well, I, so I have made the, the change midlife crisis, let's say, into <laughs> uh, finance uh, a few years ago and uh, absolutely loving it. It's um, what I was supposed to be doing all along, I think. And about uh, 12 months or so ago, I was approached by an old friend of mine, Bryony Jenkinson, who I think you've had on the show. Bryony and I go way back. We used to play badminton of all things together, and um, we're out of touch for a good 10 years or so. About a year and a half ago, I noticed her showing up in a lot of our local 
Facebook forums or groups and we reached out, reconnected, and it turns out we lived about two or three streets away from each other in a tiny, tiny little town near Ballarat, which after all these years was quite amazing. Now, Bryony uh, let me know about um, her tiny house journey and uh, after a couple of coffees, she certainly told me all about how challenging the finance side of things was. Around about the same time, uh, my sister, uh, Katrina, she was um, going through her own tiny home journey and whilst um, Katrina and I don't uh, really speak these days, um, I I was aware of her journey and again, um, some of the issues, not just surrounding finance but um, with some of the unsavoury operators in the tiny home space as well. had a few other friends that were interested in tiny homes but it was really back to that uh, conversation or several conversations around coffee with Bryony that um, uh, we were finding out that it was a, a horrendous industry to try and get finance. I don't know if it's, a, Lucy, a combination of stupidity, resilience <laughs> and, and a few other similar terms. I've got some sort of percentage of each of those that has sort of made me dig in and say, well, do you know what? I can't see why there isn't any real reason why we don't have some finance options regarding tiny homes. I mean, uh, as simple as it is in my mind to say, if you can go out and get a personal loan, an unsecured personal loan, uh, why can't you use a tiny home as security? It's a lot less risk from a lender's perspective. So it just didn't make sense to me. And of course, the more I spoke with Bryony and the more I heard of other people's plights trying to get tiny home finance, it, it just really made sense to me um, to, to, to get more involved and see if we could come up with a solution. And I'm not going to lie, there's a business element to it. It's hard to find a niche in any industry, let alone in finance in 2021, 2022. So to me, I thought it was worth uh, having a look from that perspective. But then there's the, the moral and ethical side of things as well, right? Because <laughs> let's face it, when you have news stories getting out about uh, brokers like Richard Pusey, who's that, uh, that fool on the Eastern Freeway in Melbourne um, that laughed uh, when the four policemen died in front of him during a traffic accident. That doesn't do a lot for being a broker. And, you know, I've been accused many stages over my, my broker life of, of hey, you're a, a heartless, soulless broker, what would you know? So at the end of the day, I think having some sort of worthwhile purpose for what I'm doing helps me sleep at night. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that helps me deal with what I do for a living, considering, um, you know, typically most people don't have a, a very positive view of, of brokers. And that fits in nicely with, I, I really do get a really good kick out of when we help someone into their first home, into their first car. They're, they're the sorts of things that really make this job worthwhile. So um, if you're talking about tiny homes and helping people out of a um, domestic violence situation or helping people out of a, an affordability issue, they're the situations that really make this all worthwhile. And then I guess if you, if you look at my uh, personal nature and, and understand that I am a bit of a fan of sustainability, you'd probably say 
have some um, some off grid ambitions. Um, so I'm the sort of person that's looking for um, solar power plus wind power battery um, for for my personal consumption. I drive an EV and I drive an EV for a multitude of reasons, including financial. I think you know we've hit the um, the point in time where EVs are becoming financially viable, but it's also about that coming back to that sustainability and the off grid. We live where we live on a couple of acres for good reason. We grow our own food. We have often had our own animals and um, so we process our own meat and we make sure that the kids understand where our food is coming from. Um, They help us grow the food as well. So I think the tiny home side of things really fits with my own personal ethos of of sustainability not not everyone in the tiny home industry but um i think a large segment seem to be looking for or have a similar standpoint where it's about sustainability and it's about things like climate change etc so many great things you just shared in there and i first just want to say so you mentioned bryony a couple of times so for everyone listening if you haven't heard episode number 12 with Bryony, how to find a parking space for your tiny house, I'd recommend go back and listen, listen to that. Uh, but Paul, I love how you talked about finding this purposeful way to work in finance, um, something that you're passionate about, um, and, and maybe even moving away from that typical societal perception of an insurance broker or financial people working in the financial sector. And, and the affordability side is something that I think is probably, I'd say, for a lot of people in the tiny house, uh, in the tiny house lifestyle, or that are looking to this way of life, that affordability and um, reducing the cost of living and finances is at the, in the top three, I would say. And I know that's true for myself as well. And so it does make sense to have this as an option in the tiny house space too, because even though buying a tiny house or building your own tiny house, yes, it, uh, there's a significant decrease in the cost of a, a mortgage of a traditional home or, a, or an apartment in the city and all of that. You know, the reality is that there's still a need for this service, let's call it that. So mm. I'm really great that, you know, you've, you've come around and you and Brian have come around to to creating something like this. And I'd love to know, you know, what are some of the the lending solutions that are available through you guys at GE Finance for tiny house folks? I, I should say that, uh, you know, the, the, the real in-depth conversations with Brian and I started around about 12 months ago, probably a little bit earlier than that, so very early 2021. And uh, Bryony first educated me a bit more into the, the the tiny home movement, and like most people, I was aware of it, but not not in any great depth. So she tried to to give me a really good understanding of um, the industry, and we we ran a couple of um, uh, polls on her Facebook group so I could get a better understanding of what it is that people are looking for. So you say before. Um, that it's you know a huge amount of it's about um, the the cost reduction side of things, but we also learnt there was a huge complement of um, people want to do it just for lifestyle, um, so they want to escape the the rat race and um, have a smaller uh, footprint, carbon footprint, etc. But we also found that there was a huge complement of uh, people wanting to do it for Airbnb type purposes. So that was all a bit of an eye opener, and and then that led me 
down the the path of talking to lenders to understand where it was currently at, and um, therefore we could start working on 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 an end destination. So uh, when when we started tr- trying in in the finance space, um, so it was about six months, nine months ago, about nine months ago, it was really the only options were a personal loan, probably unsecured unless you had some sort of assets that were already unencumbered or they didn't have anything owing on them. So it was really just the personal loan unsecured, maximum maximum borrowing of around about $70,000 interest rates, um, generally up in 10% plus. And of course, the maximum period you can get a, a personal loan is seven years, um, which means that you're paying uh, back uh, a, a fairly high repayment each month. And then if someone did have some land, uh, perhaps um, we could use what they call cash back from their mortgage uh, to, to buy the tiny home that way. There's a couple of buy now, pay later lenders out there as well in the, that are working in the tiny space. Just watching that one cautiously, we know Afterpay and Zip and a lot of these um, buy now, pay later systems are um, they're, they're fledgling. They haven't been around for that long, but they're also stumbling big time. A lot have gone out of business of recent, particularly in Australia. And I must point out that Australia's uh, got more buy now, pay, late, pay later lenders than anywhere in the world. And we're seeing a lot of pressure on them as interest rates start to move and the cost of living starts to go up. So they've got a high level of default, et cetera. So I'll just say that as a word of warning, buy now, pay later seems great. They're unstable and um, just be very cautious and know that the banks uh, generally don't see them favourably. And what I mean by that is when you do put an application in for, it could be a home loan, could be a personal loan, car loan, et cetera. If you've got some buy now, pay laters, they'll treat them as if they're a credit card, even if you are paying them off on time in full. Um, when they work out your serviceability, that is how much you can repay per month on a loan, they'll reduce that amount by however much the maximum theoretical might be on your buy now, pay later, just like a credit card. So that's just something to to be cautious of. So they're yeah. the, um, the options that we really started out with nine months ago and then it's been a, a slow and arduous um, process of talking to the, the various lenders um, that, that, that I work with and there's uh, probably been a good 70-odd lenders that we've spoken with and seeing what their appetite is for tiny homes and, of course, if they're not interested, finding out why and under what circumstances they might be. So towards the end of 2021, uh, we had a couple of asset lenders. So they're um, typically the types of lenders that would provide personal loans, car loans, caravan loans, that sort of thing. We had a couple come on board um, offering secured tiny home loans, which um, was an Australian first. So we're proud to have been part of that. And I won't say that it was all us. Um, There are plenty of other brokers out there that are asking as well. But certainly, I think um, we worked very strongly to to try and get that across the line. Um, We also had one mortgage lender. So if there was land involved, came on board as well and said, well, as long as there's enough um, equity in the overall loan, um, we're happy for a tiny home to constitute part of the the purpose along with the the land. So that was exciting. Uh, Around about uh, Christmas, I joined Australian Tiny 
House Association. And um, since then, I've got to say, everything's really starting to snowball. I think with the lenders that we have managed to get on board um, who were very brave getting involved in the first place, that's now created a bit of a, a snowball, as I say, where other lenders that were maybe sitting on the fence have started to come on board as well. So there's a few more that are getting involved. And um, since I've joined ATHA, there's been a few reaching out to us um, through that mechanism um, and we've got some really, really exciting um, loan options coming in the next uh, three or, or so months. Firstly, with uh, Greater Southern Bank, who changed their name recently. They were previously Credit Union Australia, so very well-known institution. Uh, Greater Southern Bank, we're working with them via AFA to try and um, get their policy around um, tiny home loans. And also Bank Australia, which we're extremely, extremely happy to um, be partnering with as well, given that, that um, both of those banks are highly ethical. They, uh, for instance, uh, uh, absolute stalwarts in, in the Australian financial system for being a bit more progressive and in particular from an ethical perspective, uh, making sure that their funds don't come from or don't aren't loaned to uh, fossil fuels, for instance, and other questionable industries. So Bank Australia, similar um, situation with them. Um, They're in the process of putting their policy together. We're involved with uh, them via AFA to to help in any way, shape or form that we can. And then from a Great Escape Finance perspective, we'll uh, hopefully be guinea-pigging those uh, those products very soon. That's really exciting. And I just want to go back to something you touched on this a couple of times already. So you're talking about um, financing for a tiny house if someone has land. Can you go deeper into to that and and maybe some of the considerations or just um, or even nuances around, yeah, if someone's wanting finance for a tiny home and they're looking at the land as well, or and then by contrast without land? Sure, sure. Yeah. So you know something I I talk about a fair bit, particularly at the tiny home expos, is we need to understand that behind every bank is typically an insurer. And the insurance companies are really the ones that we need to convince on the risk side of things uh, to make the the process of, of lending a little bit smoother. So what I mean by that is um, most of us would understand when we go for a, a traditional home loan that if we want to borrow more than 80%, uh, lender's mortgage insurance would be applicable. And we've heard about that and um, we as I said, when when you borrow more than 80%, you would need to pay a, a fee to the bank, to the lender. And that's that's due to the increased insurance premium that they would have on the insurance they take on your loan. Hopefully that made sense. So every, every home loan that um, that is written uh, has an insurance policy behind it. And whether we, we know it or, or realise it or not, the, the bank takes an insurance policy or has an insurance premium on all of their home loans. And only when there's higher risk would they ask us to, to help pay that premium. So lenders and mortgage insurance isn't actually protecting the consumer from the lender. It's protecting the lender from the consumer defaulting. And it's, it's somewhat similar in an asset loan as well, whereby um, a lot of the cost... That, that goes into 
the loan in the interest that we pay is for insurance. So it stands to reason then that what we're trying to do with the tiny home is convince the lenders that they're lower risk than they think. How that uh, sort of fits into your question is that where land's involved, we know that land is an appreciating asset over a long period of time. Um, and we know that land is seen as low risk by lenders and insurance companies alike. The tiny home itself, because there's such a small amount of data available on what will they be worth in the future, and, and even things like uh, because there is no no real code for them to be built to, uh, there's a high level of risk from a lender and an insurer's perspective um, as to even if we provide a loan, um, will there be any litigation against us if something goes wrong in the form of a default? So where land uh, is involved in the in the loan, it's a lot less risk for the lenders um, because they've got the land to fall back on. So in that particular case, what the lenders at the moment are looking for is that um, the land plus the cash that you put into, so through savings, could be gifts from people, et cetera, the land plus the cash that you put into a deal, if if that's less than, say, 70% of the overall purchase price, then we can potentially use what's called cash out to, to purchase any well, to get, I'll rephrase that, to get cash out for any worthwhile purpose and any legal purpose. So that could mean to buy a car, a caravan, to pay school, school fees for the kids, those types of things, and it includes a tiny home. In um, the eyes of the lender, however, that tiny home is your possession but isn't necessarily tied to the land. It doesn't necessarily have to stay on the land because they realise that the um, the issues with um, federal, state and local government mean that um, uh, there's no legislation yet in place uh, around the, the regulations controlling that. So really what they're saying is we'll let you have cash out. We're, we're using just the land as security. So that means if um, the loan defaults, they have the right to reclaim your land. But anything that you've um, uh, purchased with that cash out would remain your own. Then when we um, talk about if there's no land involved, if we were talking asset finance, so we've got two ways to go about this. We've got the unsecured personal loan that I spoke of earlier, and now we've got secured tiny home loans as well. So an unsecured loan, personal loan is just that. There is no claim made to the security by the lender. They, of course, if there was a default, they would take action and uh, pursue all avenues to, to recover the money from you, um, but they have no right to, to seize the asset that you've purchased with it. But the trade-off for that is you're going to pay a very high interest rate, um, you're going to pay high establishment fees, etc. And typically, they'll have a few uh, more eligibility criteria as to who can can get a, an unsecured personal loan. They might be things like uh, higher income, uh, that you've been in your job for a, a long period of time, that you're perhaps uh, full-time, part-time, maybe casual. So they're, they're less likely to be flexible with the type of person um, that's taking out one of those loans. And then as we go to the, the new uh, finance, the secured tiny home loans, what we're actually doing there is using the tiny home as its own security. So it does mean that we can bring the interest rates down a little bit. 
it means there's a bit more flexibility on the eligibility criteria for borrowers. Um, so the, that might mean that the banks are a little bit happier with, um, let's say, casual employment. They might be happy to take a portion of your income is from um, Centrelink portions, portions, maybe as much as 49%. You know, it opens up options for maybe single mums, who are receiving income from um, child maintenance plus um, family tax benefit, A and B, maybe single parenting payments as well. Um, So it opens up all of those avenues, which is exciting. And as we're talking to a few of the lenders about at the moment, um, it means that the loan term might be able to be extended out to 10 years and, and maybe eventually something like 15, hopefully, which is what we're working on with a few of the lenders I mentioned earlier. And that's important, Lucy, because if you think about uh, taking out an asset loan over seven years for a tiny home with, let's say, a value of about $100,000, before you consider any interest, before you consider establishment fees, any brokerage costs, et cetera, et cetera, just purely looking at how much would it cost me per week to pay back $100,000 if it was, let's say, a gift from a family member. Over seven years, it would be $275 a week to pay back a $100,000 loan. The reality is there's interest, there's establishment fees, brokerage, et cetera. So it's really starting to push up anywhere between $325 and $375 a week, depending on what interest rate you end up with. And for most people who are looking at a tiny home as a way to improve their affordability and uh, improve their cash flow, the, the asset loan over seven years is maybe not quite in a position yet where it's affordable, given that uh, if you were paying, let's say, $375 a week for your tiny home loan, and then you needed to pay maybe $100 to $150 a week for the rental of land, utilities, et cetera, on top of that, it's pretty expensive. And to put that in perspective, we could uh, quite easily get you a four or $500,000 traditional house and land for that sort of monthly payment so that yeah it does it does start to add up and and so i think that's that's great that you are looking towards those longer term options like 10 15 years because it makes sense too because of the the affordability thing and that you know a lot of people of course we're saying that you know the whole lifestyle minimizing the impact on the earth and simplifying life, those kinds of things. But when it comes to the financial aspect too, having those bigger repayments are, are still going to be, um, still kind of got to be challenging uh, during the time mm-hmm. that you've got to pay them back. So I'm wondering as well, you know, how can someone work out what they can afford to borrow? There's some good uh, calculators online and my recommendation is to probably go somewhere like uh, Money Smart. Um, which is a uh, government-run website. Of course, that means that you don't have the bias or any potential for bias from whoever the lender is. Get in touch with us and we'll soon um, work out what your borrowing capacity is. And what we like to do from a responsible uh, lending perspective is make sure that we consider where the interest rates might be going in the near future. So um, uh, most uh, brokers would add a, a buffer amount to, to cover maybe the next three to five years of potential interest rate um, changes. 
And and what that means is we're just working out your serviceability on a worst case scenario, just to make sure that we're not going to be putting you into hardship if if uh, if you do uh, go ahead with the loan. But initially, as I said, Money Smart is a good place to to go to do a couple of simple online tests. But what I'd say is even even if you go to a lender's uh, website and have a look at their borrowing capacity, they're always absolute best case scenario. And they're, they're based on, you've only given them a very, very small amount of information. It's a lot more complex than that. So there are, are several formulas that we need to, to use when we're determining what your borrowing capacity is. And the frustrating thing from my perspective and a lot of uh, a lot of people that work in the finance sector is those borrowing capacity calculators that, in particular, the big lenders have. They're um, they're only based on one of the factors, and it's typically the most favourable factor. So you'll go and you fill out the information that says, "Hey, great, you can borrow six hundred thousand dollars." The reality is, once we check some of the other information behind your personal situation, and we we, we uh, run the numbers based on some of the other formulas that we need to work to. What we've got to do is make sure that of the three main formulas being the debt-to-income ratio, the loan-to-income ratio, and um, some of the other items that we go through, we need to make sure that we only state your borrowing capacity as whichever of the lowest results we get. So if we in one calculation got six hundred thousand, in another calculation got five hundred thousand, in another calculation got four hundred thousand, we would tell you that your borrowing capacity is four hundred thousand dollars, and likewise with a, a personal loan. So you can see it's really frustrating from our perspective that people can go to one of the, the large lenders' websites and use their borrowing calculator tool, and it says, "Yeah, you can have six hundred thousand dollars," and then um, the client is very, very frustrated when we say, "Oh no, it's actually only four hundred. So for that reason, and that's a little bit of the bias that I talk about, I think it's a good idea to go to somewhere like Money Smart, Money uh, Money Smart with the government, or go to a broker. Come to us. We'd love if you come to us. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Great Escape Finance. But ideally, look if you're heading to a broker, they're going to do those checks and balances. They're going to tell you what you truly can do. Unlike um, the bank, who's not working for you like we are. Uh, the bank's going to try and get you into the absolute maximum amount of spending they possibly can. Uh, there are some really good tools available on some of the comparison websites as well. Um, so if you're talking about CanStar and Finder and those those um, sort of places, there's some great tools. Just listening to you talk about all of that and, you know, you mentioned earlier before like this perception of you know, finance brokers, you know, the it doesn't always have like a such a positive connotation but what i'm feeling and hearing as i'm as we're chatting today is that you know you you've got this humanity and care and ethics and yeah just genuine care for wanting to do things properly and really wanting to help people because you know it can be a bit of a, a minefield out there and and when you know money is involved and all of that it it gets uh get a bit sticky so it's really nice to um you know just feel this genuine want to help people from from you so that's really really lovely and i yeah well thank you as well and i would also love to know you know if someone is thinking that they might want to go down the finance route for their tiny house how long in advance should they start to to think about that and and go through that process and 
And then what effect does this have on the amount that they can borrow and the interest rates as well? Fantastic question. Um, glad you asked that. This is probably one of the most frustrating parts of um, tiny home finance is that most most of the people that we talk to, they, they've been to, to see the builder. Uh, they might have picked out their land, et cetera. They might be a long way down the, the path of getting into their tiny home and they leave finance to the end. And that's a really big problem because ideally, we want to see you about six months beforehand. Definitely no earlier than 12 weeks. And the reason for that is, and it depends a little bit on if you're going to go for um, a home loan or a mortgage with land, or if you're going to do just the asset itself through secured tiny home lending. Either way, almost any lender is going to ask for about 12 weeks of your bank statements. And they're going to run through that information with a fine-tooth comb and they're going to find every dishonour. They're going to find every loan payment, even if it's an unofficial loan. Like if you're paying a family member $50 a fortnight and we can see that same $50 amount every fortnight, they'll understand that that's a loan. And it might not actually be, but they'll, they'll raise the questions. They'll look for buy now, pay later. They'll look for uh, any undisclosed loans, etc. So really what we need as brokers is time to review your bank statements before the banks do. And then if there are problems, we can um, work with you over a period of however many weeks or months we need to to get you credit worthy. And the same goes with your credit report. So your consumer credit report. There can be, without you really knowing, there can be a few nasties on there. And your credit score might be a lot lower than you think. And that's often the case, uh, Lucy, is that we'll, we'll say to a client early days, how's your credit score? A lot don't know. And of the people that do know, think it's pretty good. And then once we run their credit report, we find out, that it's actually uh, below average. It's very, very common. And it seems to be a bit of a problem, more so in the tiny home industry. So things on your credit report like you've had um, what the lenders would consider an excessive amount of credit inquiries in the last five years. So they they track all forms of credit. And of course, credit doesn't isn't just limited to what comes from the banks. It includes telecommunications, it includes utilities. And the reason for that is that those those companies are providing you with credit one month at a time. So that information ends up on your credit report. So if you're not paying your bills on time in full, that'll hit your credit report. Um, but also every time you make an inquiry, and it could be just because you're savvy, you're trying to find the best uh, deal for your telephone, uh, for your internet, for your... Um, water and gas, etc. But each time you make an inquiry, it hits your credit report. But typically, if you have any more than eight inquiries over a five-year period, that's considered excessive. And if you think about uh, how many inquiries you might make over five years for all of those things, so for telco, for utilities, and for anything from a traditional lending perspective, it's very easy to get to eight. Um, I'm not sure about you, Lucy, but um, uh, over a five-year period, you'd maybe a couple of times investigate uh, better 
better um, electricity prices and um, you might swap your um, your telephone provider from Telstra to Optus to Vodafone or something like that, then you might have a couple of inquiries for uh, loans or credit cards or something like that. So it's actually really easy to end up with more than eight inquiries in a five-year period. And once you do, it brings your credit score down. Also, for a full two-year period, every uh, credit facility you have, so this is specifically with lenders, so it could be all forms of loans, credit cards, um, so include personal loans, car loans, etc. They track month by month what your repayment history is is like and what your behaviour is like. And if you're late, it'll be marked on there and that'll bring your score back. Um, also, if you have a history of having maybe a credit card or a, a car loan for a short period of time, say two years, um, you might take that car loan out for five years and after two years you find a better interest rate somewhere. So you refinance it and you move across to um, another lender. That's a negative because it's not showing loyalty to the bank. And, of course, that means that um, they're not making money. Because at the end of the day, a credit history report is <laughs> it's there to help the banks understand if you're a good potential customer for them. And, of course, a good potential customer for them is someone that's sticky, that's going to stay around for a while, and someone they're going to make money out of. And it stands to reason that if you're changing your loan all the time, they're not going to make money. So the Australian credit scoring system, again, a bit frustrating in that it's um, designed to penalise you for any of these activities that the uh, the lender would see as unfavourable to them. And um, just one last thing on the credit report would be that um, if you do have defaults, so uh, there was a, a Telstra bill that um, for whatever reason, and most of the time people have pretty good reason, could be a relationship breakdown or something like that, but they might have had a, um, a bill that was never paid and was passed on to a debt recovery company. Those defaults will stay on your credit record for seven years if they're unpaid and five years if they're paid, and they make a huge impact to your score. So all of these things, whether it be your account behaviour and your bank statements or it be your history on your credit report, make a massive difference on your credit score. Your credit score is highly tied to the interest rate that you will get in the asset world. In the, the mortgage side of things, it's more an eligibility uh, item where if your score is under 600, you might not be eligible for vast amount of lenders and then you have to go to what we call subprime lenders and that's where you start paying some pretty high interest rates. Wow, there's so many considerations that I didn't, you know, hadn't even occurred to me. Um, yeah, that's really great to know. Thank you for sharing all of that. Kind of blown my mind a bit. <laughs> And that's, that's why yeah. it's, you know, one of, one of the biggest or one of the early questions that almost everyone asks us is, uh, what, what are the interest rates, Paul? And it's so hard to answer that because mm. we, we know they could start for as low as something like 1.89% if you've got land and uh, maybe 5.99% um, if it's just asset only. But the reality is those interest rates could go out anywhere as high as 40%. But uh, they could go as high as 40% if you have 
uh, a really bad uh, scenario. Now, that, that's rare. I haven't seen anything above 24.95, but even if you think about what the repayments would be at 24.95%, that's over a, a, a five-year period, for instance, it basically doubles your loan because you've got compounding interest. Um, so let's say we borrowed $10,000 at 24.95% over a, a five-year period for a, a car or um, something like that. You would typically expect in that circumstance to end up paying back $20,000. Oh, my goodness. Because that's that high yeah. interest rate. So I think, <laughs> circling back to your actual question, <laughs> How, how early should we be talking to someone like myself? Um, ideally, it's six months because if we've got um, a, a fairly ordinary situation with, with your bank statements and or credit report, we need some time to work with you to get it into a situation where we can get you the best possible rate. Sometimes it could be that we need to work with you to just get you eligible, but most of the time it's, uh, it's the difference between somewhere more like uh, 14 15% and 7 or 8%. Because that's what I'd see more frequently, Lucy, is that um, for secured tiny home loans, um, the average rate there would probably be around about 12 to 14%. And it could be a lot lower if um, people were, if the consumers were um, putting a little bit of effort into their credit history and a little bit of um, forethought into the finance side of things. And of course, the, the, the big thing is um, you need to go and figure out, uh, whether it's to a broker or online, you need to figure out what your borrowing capacity is before you commit to buying something. Um, you wouldn't do it with a home. You wouldn't decide one day that you're going to buy a home and um, go and have a look at a house in, in Turak in Victoria, in Melbourne, or in, in um, Manly Beach or somewhere like that in Sydney, you wouldn't just walk straight out and say, oh, I'm going to buy a $2 million house uh, without knowing what your borrowing capacity is. It's exactly the same with asset finance, with a tiny home, with a car, anything. You need to know how much can I actually borrow before I go and commit to that purchasing that asset. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's just blown my mind with the the difference in the the interest rates. Like you're saying, fourteen percent, fifteen percent, but then it if you know it could be even half of that. So yeah, that's that's a massive difference. Uh, yeah, and and I'm wondering as well. So are there any differences? You know, when it comes to financing for a DIY tiny house build versus one that's built by a registered builder or a building company. Um, are there any considerations with that? Or uh, is financing even available for DIY tiny house builds? We, we can. Uh, we've got some limited options. I mean, it's already limited options anyway for tiny home finance. Yeah. But there's a, a couple of lenders that are okay with DIY as long as there's a VIN number. What that really means is that we need to – it must have wheels – we need to make sure that it's got wheels so that we can get a VIN. Uh, then in that case there, um, there's only there's really only one lender that we can work with in the asset side of things at this point in time. And um, the interest rate's going to be a bit higher as well because ideally what they're looking for, uh, given that there is you know no real code to work to at this point in time, they're, they're looking for um, builders 
that that have been established for a few years and have got a pretty good reputation. So there have been some builders that have been put forward to us and then we've put forward to the lenders that the lenders haven't been happy to to work with um, based on could be poor reputation or could be very short period of time in existence. Yeah, and you and you just said there as well. So it has to have a VIN number and it has to be on wheels so that it can be registered. But what about tiny houses on a foundation? Does that come under like a regular fixed dwelling house, or is there there's something around that? So, so if we're looking at um, um, not on wheels, um, that really precludes us at this point in time from asset finance. And unless there's a business involved, we might be able to do something there. So that's where you might be talking about the Airbnb side of things so which is actually a pretty flexible uh, part of the market so we we can typically do something there but if it's for consumer use and there's no land involved at this point in time it's it's not an option mm. whereas if there's land involved the lenders would actually prefer if it's not on wheels they'd prefer that it was on foundations and if we can get the minimum square meterage of that uh, that home or that dwelling to 36 square metres or more, and that's excluding decking, et cetera, so the actual living space of 36 square metres or more, we could actually fit that into a traditional mortgage product as long as um, the dwelling is fixed in place and you get the certificate of occupancy, et cetera. Ah, okay, that's good to know. And I guess with also the having the land, as you mentioned before, it is a um, the land is the, the lower risk option as well. So... Um, exactly, yeah. and that's because that's the thing that's appreciating in value. You know, yeah. typically over a ten-year, seven to ten-year period, uh, land will double in price. Um, a tiny home itself will, much like a caravan, but maybe not not, not to the same extent, will depreciate in price, yeah. uh, just like a car would, just like a boat would, any movable asset. And in fact. Um, when you couple a house and land together, so a traditional house and land package, stands to reason that what you're doing is you're renovating that property every sort of 10 to 15 years to keep it current because it does lose value. And, and uh, it's exactly the same in the, the tiny home aspect is that uh, if you don't maintain um, that, that tiny home, it's going to lose value uh, quicker than it otherwise would. But that's, as you say, is exactly where the allure from a lender's perspective comes into it there, uh, seeing it as much lower risk if there's land involved. Makes sense, makes sense. And I'm curious as well, are there any misconceptions about financing a tiny house that, you know, you've come across or that you hear frequently? I I think uh, the the biggest thing is that most people haven't um, considered how much the repayments will be. For that reason, so so we were talking before about a hundred thousand dollar tiny home could quite easily end up if if your interest rate is high because your uh, credit history or your banking behaviour has been a bit average. Um, so you could quite easily be paying somewhere around three hundred seventy five dollars a week in in repayments or more, and and uh, so you're getting up around the fifteen sixteen hundred even seventeen hundred dollars a month. Uh, to make those repayments. And that, as I said earlier, is somewhat equivalent to, in that case, about a $400,000 mortgage. Of course, a mortgage is spread over 30 years, so you will be paying more interest over the course of that loan. So I think 
from a, a, a client's best interests if you can pay that loan off sooner, even if you are uh, incurring a, a large interest rate. So if you can pay that loan off in seven years, five years, three years, fantastic. Even if you've got a high interest rate, you're you're typically going to see that your total interest spent over the term of the loan is a lot less. But the reality is that that's just not affordable for most people. So that that would be probably the biggest um, thing from our perspective is most people haven't done their homework to understand, well, how much is this going to cost me? Yeah, a tiny home is only 100000 or 120000 compared to four or 500000 but the interest rates are higher. I've got to pay it back. Uh, a lot quicker, so the monthly repayments are actually a lot higher than most people think. So for that reason, we we probably see quite a few um, tiny home purchases fall over because someone just hasn't done their homework. Yeah, gosh, lots of hidden considerations there. You know, if someone wants to work with you guys at Great Escape Finance, Paul, what does that process look like? So typically we um, have a, a quick and somewhat informal chat uh, just to see what someone's goals and objectives are. If it sounds like a, a viable process for both parties, the, the borrower and ourselves, we'll send out um, some links to our online client portal. And that's um, really what we call a, a fact find. So we're trying to get not just your personal details around um, residential history, employment history, that sort of thing, but we're also trying to get an understanding of your financial situation. Once we've got that information from you, and that typically takes about 30, 35 minutes to do um, online, it could be done from a smartphone, etc. then we would review that and we would set up a time, another time to um, talk with you about the options from there. And that could range from um, you're good to go right now, and that'd be fantastic. And here's your, your borrowing capacity Here's the different lenders that we might be able to use and their interest rates, et cetera. And it could also go the other direction. It could be, look, we're going to have to work with you for a little while because of these particular issues. We um, often do a little bit of coaching there to uh, help people understand how their credit report works and, and how we can get it heading in the right direction. And, of course, there could be that situation where um, we need to say, let's uh, let's talk to you again in a, a year or two once a few of these things have been sorted out. From there, we would get supporting documents and we would reconcile those supporting documents back to what you've told us your personal situation is. We're also looking for, depending on the lender, it might be some very specific supporting documents for that lender. And then we'd give you what's called a a statement of credit assistance. And that's sort of a two-part report. The first part uh, is our understanding of your situation. And then the second part is our recommendations. Once you sign off on that, then we would manage the loan application process all the way through to settlement for you. Amazing. And what's the the best way to get in contact with you guys? Uh, Is it your website? So gefinance.com.au, there's a, a, a contact form on there, which is fantastic because it asks you a few of the early questions that we need to know. Um, and I understand most people are sort of reluctant to to share information with us, but you just need to remember that um, the broker is working for you, not like a, a bank or a lender who are um, working for themselves and the staff are working for themselves. We work for you and our desire is to, to get the best possible outcome for you because we want to... 
we want to, uh, like every broker does, we want to form a long-term relationship with you. We we want to survive the barbecue test too, right? Mm-hmm. So that means yeah. when when you're at a barbecue and friends and family are talking about uh, uh, finance, that you say, hey, I know a good broker. Um, why don't you try this guy? Why don't you try these people? We, we want to not only be your go-to person for the rest of your life, um, we want to, to use the most powerful marketing tool that's out there, word of mouth. Um, so it's in our absolute interest to make sure that we do a, a good job for you and on your behalf. So sharing as much information as possible with us really makes that journey nice and smooth. And we're bound by the Privacy Act, Responsible Lending Guidelines, uh, Best Interest Duty, etc. So any information you share with us is um, tightly held. So, so using the contact form on our website is really, really helpful in getting that process cracking nice and easy. Otherwise, we've got a, a, a toll-free number on the um, the website there you can use as well, or you can go to info at gefinance.com.au. Perfect. I will put everything in the show notes as well. I and mean, you've got your uh, social media pages as well, don't you? So GE Finance on Instagram and Facebook? That's correct, yes. Yep. Yeah. And we do monitor those, um, uh, the, the messages that come in. Um, remember, immediately the week or so post uh, a, a tiny home expo, it is um, challenging for <laughs> it to keep up. So I know over the last couple of weeks, it's taken a couple of days to get back to some clients. And so we apologize for that. But it is, uh, you know, we'll come out of a tiny home expo, expo with hundreds of inquiries. Um, so it is a, a difficult process to prioritize what we're doing for the next week or two. But typically, yeah, our response time is pretty, pretty quick. Amazing. And, you know, as we wrap up the conversation, Paul, I just want to know, is there anything else you feel like we haven't covered today about tiny house finance that would be important for people to hear? Look, I think it's important for, I'll put my Australian uh, tiny house uh, <laughs> hat on for a moment. I think yeah. it's important for whether whether we be the the professionals, um, so that's the the finance, uh, that's the builders, uh, the likes of yourself. It's important for all of the professionals to to be part of something like Atha, so we can all get together in one one direction. But also for the consumers, it's really really important to get behind the association and the professionals that are trying to advance the industry because it's only through this that we'll we'll get change. And uh, the other thing would be, I think, really good idea to to follow a few of the, the professionals that are advocates for the industry on on Facebook because it's moving really quickly, particularly the finance side of things. It's changing really, really quickly. And as I said earlier, we'll have a couple of exciting announcements with um, Greater Southern Bank and Bank Australia um, coming in the next month or two, which um, both will be groundbreaking, uh, but also us ourselves, we're working to, together with the Melbourne investment firm to offer what's called fractional investing. And maybe we can talk about this on another occasion, Lucy, but effectively what we're going to be looking to do is is get tiny homers to help each other get loans. So for oh. instance, you might be able to use your, your superannuation to help me get into a tiny home and I might be able to use my superannuation to get you into a tiny home. So a lot of have super sitting around with with companies like uh, MLC and AMP, et cetera, making money off it. 
what we're trying to um, hatch here, and we've done a couple of these campaigns already, is that we're um, using some some non-traditional uh, funding methods, which is akin to crowdfunding, uh, to help each other get into tiny homes and other assets that are traditionally hard to finance. So we've got a couple of those uh, that we're guinea-pigging at the moment, which is exciting, and we'll have some announcements on that in the next month or two. But fractional investing for tiny homes and other alternative dwellings, I think, uh, will play a huge part in in the future. And it's not limited to superannuation investing. It could be uh, any of us that have got a spare thousand dollars. I'm not sure about you, but I don't. Um, <laughs> um, must not be a very good broker if I can't r- rustle up a thousand dollars. Yeah, we're looking to to put together uh, the tiny home and B and B. Uh, fund, which will be a nationwide wide fund. It's currently being put out to financial planners around the country to see if we can get some what they call sophisticated investors behind it. But apart from that, we'll be looking for mum and dad investors. We'll be looking for people that have got some superannuation to use as well. Um, and all for the purpose of helping to fund tiny homes, whether they be for consumer or for business purposes. I love that. And, and that idea of the the superannuation and, and helping each other fund tiny homes, that is such a unique and incredible idea. I'd love to hear more about that. And yeah, if you if you ever want to come back on the show and, and let us know as that's progressing, you're more than welcome. Yes, oh. that'll be great. All right. So Paul, thank you so much for your generous sharings today. Uh, You've given us a lot to consider and think about, and I really appreciate you joining me on the show. So thank you again. It's great to be part of it. Very, very happy to – it's it's a very complex, and as you probably heard, we can go very, very deep into the technicalities of the finance, and there's insurance to talk about as well. So I'd be very, very happy to help again in the future. And um, ultimately, I think, you know, now that I'm embedded within the tiny home industry, I just want to advocate for um, better solution for all of the different demographics that are involved. Absolutely. And I mirror your sentiment that you mentioned before that, you know, we need to be out there supporting each other and, you know, this is how change is going to happen, whether it's with finance, insurance, and of course, the regulations, which I think is probably the biggest one that, um, you know, we want to see more progression in that and more clarity and specialized regulations and things around tiny homes. And so, yeah, I I really, I love that. And I agree. And no, if you're listening to this at home, uh, make sure you go and check out Paul at gefinance.com.au. And you can also find all the show notes at tinyhouseconversations.com. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to us today. And if you want more Tiny House Conversations, stay tuned every Thursday for new episodes. And I'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. And if you enjoyed the conversation today, you found it valuable and you want to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is to share the love. That way I can keep bringing you more tiny house conversations to help you on your own tiny journey. So here are three ways that you can support the podcast. Number one, if you have a friend or family member that you feel would benefit from hearing these conversations, feel free to share it with them, email them, text them, send them a telegram, do whatever you need to do to share it with them. Number two, if you hit the subscribe button, you'll know exactly when the next episode is live. 
And number three, if you head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts and leave a five-star rating and review, thank you so much in advance. I appreciate you and I'll see you in the next episode.